0: Wow, that is quite some scripture, as Carolyn was kind of saying. It, it, the title in, in every Bible is The Woman Caught in Adultery. And it's quite a tense encounter. Um, and of course, in, in those days when, when uh, these scripts were written, it was a very, as she said, very patriarchal society. So there's no mention of the man who was caught with her. It takes two to tango, friends. And this man is no mention. We don't know who he was, whether he was married, whether he wasn't, whatever it was, whatever. However it was done, there was an adulterous situation. So there is this real incredible encounter, which is one of deep humiliation for this woman and one of deep shame for the whole of that that kind of situation. So what we're going to learn, I hope and pray, from uh, the uh, teaching this morning is just how true grace and integrity can triumph over the abuse of power. Oh, that's so relevant today, isn't it, in our politics? True grace and integrity and how it can triumph over the abuse of power. One of the aftermaths of recent hurricanes was when they checked the trees that had been blown away and blown down was there was a lot of badness inside the trees that had looked fine previously when they were standing upright. And then the wind comes, and they go down, and then there's this disease that's found inside the trees. It's what's on the inside that counts. This is a very old phrase. You know it very, very well. I've told you before, when we have team leaders meetings here, I've said to the team leaders, not every time, but I've often said, let's imagine there's a camera on our meeting room today. And all the congregation are sitting in the, in the hall and they're watching how we carry out business. Do we do it with integrity? Do we do it with prayer? How do we, how do we carry out our conversation? It's always with grace. Uh, and that's a very beautiful thing. Last week we spoke about the cows and the goats and the chickens. Who remembers? <sighs> the cows and the goats and the chickens in the house. Yes, thank you. Marian and Stephen remember. Thank God they were here. Yeah, about, about how, you know, you need to get those little animals out of the, out of the residence in order for the residents to look as tidy and as clean and as good on the inside as it did on the outside. This week, we've seen American actor Bill Cosby jailed for serious, grievous offenses against women. On the outside, he had been called America's dad. But at the same time, on the inside, he was clearly a different person. Yet, yeah, dare we judge? To different degrees, hypocrisy can affect us all. For who of us is perfection itself? And this is the key point that Jesus makes in our reading about hypocrisy. So we're going to take a look at it, and here's the background. The scribes and the Pharisees, well, they're out to trap Jesus. They are out to get him. They want to pin some, some kind of offense on him so that they can really put him away, get rid of him, execute him, do something. So they want to get him into a legal drama. And in ancient days, whenever there was a dilemma, so a rabbi was called. So there's a woman caught in adultery, and they think, ah, here's our opportunity. Let's call the rabbi Jesus, and let's see what this rabbi has to say about this highly important question regarding this very immoral woman. Now, in Jewish law, the sin of adultery was so serious that the rabbis had a saying. Every Jew must die before he or she commits adultery, murder, or idolatry. It was an action punishable by death. Here's a very cheerful verse from Leviticus. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's one of the more cheerful verses in Leviticus. One law even said it had to be by strangulation. In a Jewish document of law called the Mishnah, the instruction says this, death by stoning is the penalty for a girl who is betrothed and who then commits adultery. And then there are clear laws and explicit instructions on how to carry out the execution, which you'll be pleased to know I am not going to go into this morning. So the scribes and Pharisees bring this problem to Jesus to try and trap him. They knew that his dilemma would be as follows. You've got the verse 6 coming up there. they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now this is is how it worked. He He could either support her or he couldn't support her. He had to go one way or the other in the, in the minds of the Pharisees. If he agreed with the law and them that this woman should be stoned to death, then his teaching and the promises about God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness would lose all credibility amongst all his followers, and he would lose his his, uh, well, not his power, but he, he would lose everything that everybody thought about him lose that sense of compassion this man isn't compassionate on the other hand if he said that she should be pardoned then he's condoning adultery and he's effectively going against the Jewish law and that would be uh, an offense with which he could be arrested uh, as a very serious offense so he had this massive decision to make and either way he's going to lose either his credibility or he's going to lose his freedom so what does he do Now, imagine the scene. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees, all gathered somewhere there on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Scribes and Pharisees, looking at Jesus. What is he going to do? You've got a crowd of people gathering. They're looking at one woman, very, very judgmentally. And there's you've got the woman herself, who will be tightly bound, held by men, just about ready to drag her off to execute her in a most cruel fashion. And then you've got Jesus. What is this rabbi going to do? Well, this is this, friends is where you, you, you come to believe that there is a genius of heaven that we cannot sort of We cannot source. It's an incredible thing that happens here. You need to get the absolute um, brilliance of how the Holy Spirit has worked. He stoops down and he puts his finger in the dust and he writes. We're not told the words that he writes. And through the years, theologians have debated this one an awful lot. But there is a very, very fine theory that many are coming, to, coming around to see now because there is, in addition to the New Testament, there's an ancient Armenian manuscript that says this. He himself, bowing his head, was writing with his finger on the earth to declare their sins and they were seeing their many sins written on the stones. Okay. This is genius. I was off this. Let's go a bit deeper. Don't just take my word for it. Um, if we can have the next slide up. You see, in the, in the manuscript, in the verses that are written there, that John writes, this is going back to John's Gospel, the word for writing that writing, he uses is graphene. The New Testament word for writing is catagraphy. You could use one or the other. And John uses Catagraphene, meaning to write down a record against someone, a list, a catalogue of their sins. And this is what is happening. And you notice Jesus stoops down and he writes. And then they talk to him and he stands. Well, no wonder they talk to him if, he's, if they see, oh, blimey, don't like the look of that. Yeah, and he stands up and they, they want to talk to him, they want to sort of divert his attention and he's not having it. He says, okay, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Let me get on with my writing, thank you very much. And then he goes on and he writes in, his, in, in the sand with his finger a catalogue of their several sins on the stones. And you look at the Pharisees and you think, well, why didn't they sort of go, well, no, that's not right, sorry, no, not doing that, Jesus, off you go, thank you very much. Why didn't they protest? Is it perhaps because their several sins were actually well known? That people knew, but because they were Pharisees and high rabbis, you could never criticize them. They were seen and they were understood. And they sort of went, red. oh my goodness. He's writing down those several sins on the stone. Not just one word, but a catalogue. That's, I think, why they didn't protest their innocence. They were all about outward, right, outward appearance and not inner righteousness. Now, this is not the first time Jesus talks against the hypocrisy of Pharisees. Can we have the, the next slide up? Look at this. This is from Matthew now. This is back to Matthew 23, 25 and 26. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. See how he goes for it? But he's not finished, because he says something else. Next line. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What they used to do is get white powder and they used to put it all over their face and then they would stand on the street corner and pray and people say, oh, they look like they've been up all night, bless them, Wonderful. Thanks for praying so hard to us. Look how tired and wan and pale and awful they look. They were all right. Does he finish there? Does he finish there? What do you reckon? Does he finish? (laughs) No, of course he doesn't. Let's go to the next one. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. Yeah. The translation says, Jesus says, okay, stone her but let the man who is without sin be the first to throw. But even here we go deeper because the Armenian translation of that bit says, and Jesus said, okay, stone her, but only if you've never wanted to do the same thing with her yourself. Wow. Stone her but only if you've never wanted to do the same thing with her yourself. And we read that the accusers slipped away. Woo! One day one. Got to go. Got to go. Got to go. The older ones first, which is interesting, it says. Maybe they had the longer list of sins and wanted to get away first. Or maybe it was a hip issue and they had to fly as much as they. Next time you feel judgmental about someone else, imagine your inner thoughts and feelings being written before your eyes in the dust, on a flip chart, painted on the walls of your house, and ask, what divine right do I have to comment? You see, Jesus Christ hasn't given us any authority to judge, but rather every divine right to love. This was a woman, a woman, a woman caught in adultery. And if Christ says, I don't condemn you, who are we to do so?
1: From the pen of Dorothy L. Sayers. Perhaps it's no wonder... That the women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them. Never flattered or coaxed or patronised. Who never made arch jokes about them. Never treated them either as the women. God bless us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind, and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them, and was completely, perfectly, unself-conscious.
0: So Jesus says, go and sin no more. We become accountable in the fellowship of believers to one another. And if or when we do fall, we believe in what's termed the gospel of the second chance, the unequaled grace of the living God. And in our hearts, we not only recognize the presence of Christ in our lives, but also in our fellowship. Over a hundred years ago, a poet called Louisa Fletcher wrote these lines, and maybe they speak to us this morning. Indeed, the woman in adultery might well have written them. Here it is. How I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor, selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. My hand goes up to that one. The cross speaks of how grace defeated Roman power. If in Jesus' day you had to put a bet, you wouldn't have done, would you? But if you had to put a bet on whether this odd group of disciples following this itinerant rabbi would still have some kind of influence in a couple of thousand years' time, or the mighty power of the Roman army would have an influence over the whole world as it did at that time, you'd put your money on the Romans any time. Grace, though, defeated that power. God knows our story, who and what we've been, but more crucially, he knows what we can be. The sinner can become a saint. The encounter speaks of the bigger picture of God's absolute faith and belief in human nature. And in 2018, it speaks to us clearly. We're in a world that desperately requires this fabulous, all-embracing, grace of Christ it begins with you and me growing more and more into knowing and saying the things saying that the things of Christ make sense we don't just go around doing the right things we actually want to be the right kind of people people who possess the strength of grace which has its source in God Amen